0: Thank you for listening to episode 17 of The Kindness Rebellion. In this episode, I spoke with Todd Tran. We have an awesome conversation about spirituality and uh, creating socioeconomic change. A lot of the conversation was kind of geared around the nitty-gritty of socioeconomic change, and it was a super valuable conversation. I've known Todd for a while now. We used to have some bands that we played in together, and he's been producing music now, producing amazing music, I should add. And uh, So you should make sure to check out uh, all of his stuff after you listen to this episode. Make sure to like, share, and subscribe. Uh, Do whatever it is you do to let me know you like the podcast and please enjoy. Thanks for listening. This is a podcast about rejecting tyranny and oppression by cultivating both systemic and individual change. I believe the only way to create this kind of monumental change is to inspire understanding, love, and kindness. From there, we can work to embody these essential values in our cultural systems and in our individual lives. My hope is that by effectively communicating with anyone and everyone, we can establish a shared vision for humanity and explore new ways of living to build a better world for all of us. I'm your host, Nathan Jones, and this is The Kindness Rebellion.
1: What's up, man? Dude, long time no see. What's (sighs) up? I feel like the last time I saw you was actually literally i think like the last show our bands played together
0: no dude it was actually right before you left for your mission was it really yeah so both of our families i don't know if you remember this both of our families were vacationing in saint george at the same time dude
1: you're right yeah. i remember we were at like a soccer game or yeah, something. Exactly. yeah exactly <laughs> so dude, we met so up crazy. and we hung out
0: for a bit and then i think i actually went to like your farewell dinner but it's okay you, you didn't did. remember me going there because there was a shit ton of people so yeah you
1: <laughs> you and like a couple of i think keith and dalen mm-hmm. were there too yep dude there were a lot of people man. yeah i was popular in high school dude, it <laughs> <laughs> <was> <laughs> i mean you're still popping man <laughs> Thanks, i mean because
0: uh, like uh, tell us a little bit about what you're doing right now um
1: uh, yeah, go for it. Yeah, so I, I do a lot of producing for just like local artists and everything. Um, I mean, I do a bit of everything, you know, but I th- my main thing right now and what I'm making an income off of is producing for local artists and some not local artists. I work with a bunch of people from L.A., just California area and everything. But it's pretty cool. I, I think that it's a very like – is very interesting to kind of now be inside of the music industry Mm. as one of like the the behind the scenes people instead of just being the artists, you know, because we were just the artists in high school and we had recorded at, I remember... We, our bands had recorded at the same studio one time, Surge, you Mm -hmm. know, (laughs) and we did like some demos there and it was a good time and everything like that. And it was such a different experience. And now being a producer, working with artists behind the scenes and helping make their music come to life and everything like that. It's just, it's insane to see just how completely different it is. But yeah, that's like my main thing. A lot of production, a lot of recording, um, some songwriting, some mixing, some mastering, but largely I produce for artists, and Mm
0: -hmm. that's uh, that's how I make my money. (laughs) Dude, it suits you. I mean, uh, just like the bands that we had together, it was um, uh, it was so cool to see you just like pump out some really good songs, dude. Like for Winners Iris, and then you even started doing some uh, helping out Alice once again and songwriting for Alice once again. Dude, I remember that.
1: We uh, you guys, we just had you guys come up and just record a couple of songs, like just for fun. You know, (laughs) like all we did was like. It, it was literally like you guys came up, recorded drums, like just, just because I said like, Hey, come record like with us or whatever. Mm-hmm. no one, there was no money involved or anything like that. And no one ever released it, but it was definitely a good time. And it was oh, yeah, dude. It, definitely the catalyst to me being in the position I am now mm-hmm. was knowing you guys and doing a lot of the stuff for, for winter's Iris and everything as well. So, so cool. I mean, I think it's fair to say that Alice once again, and you, you know, you and the guys were definitely a huge reason that I am in the position I am now. So That's
0: awesome. <laughs> it was so funny how we kind of turned into like a brother bands or whatever and, and yeah for, we did like every show together yeah. you know? and it was it was for a split second i feel like we just hung out a lot a lot yeah. well i was filling in on
1: rhythm guitar for That's you guys right. for like the last
0: year That's or something right. it was That's crazy right. that was honestly the golden age of alice once again dude it was but dude honestly i'm so jealous that you're able to make music your full-time career like being able to just be creative in in your own space and then kind of like what we were talking about earlier being able to own your own labor and being able to uh, kind of dismantle the normal hierarchies that we see um, I'd love to hear more kind of about that your experience with that and um, how that kind of brought you here on the podcast today where we're gonna talk yeah, about dude. like economics and spirituality and things like that sure
1: yeah so I think so um, you know for any of you guys that are, are Listening and everything. I am the owner and founder of a studio called Audio House um, with Tyler, who was actually, I think, on your last episode. Yeah, he right? was uh, yeah on the last episode. Nice. So, so Tyler and I founded a studio together, um, and that was that was a great you know that was a great time, great experience and everything. And I, it was interesting because you found a studio and then you bring on other team members, you know, employees, and you create this hierarchy, right, which mm-hmm. is. You know for people that are you know from all all different walks of life that you know can fall under the umbrella of being on the left right mm-hmm. there's kind of this criticism this critique of the hierarchy within labor right mm-hmm. um which you know we learn from marx all these other guys and everything right which is there is a um like a you know a ruling class but a capitalist class who owns the means of production and then there is the working class you know us laborers who are basically renting out our our bodies and our minds and everything like that to utilize the owns of the the, sorry to utilize the means of production owned by said capital capitalist class in exchange for a wage Mm -hmm. right so basically the, the relationship dynamic to our basic survival is completely different, right? Yeah. The, the way that the capitalist survives is by having workers who create value who they take a portion of those well, they the take value, all of that value. they take yeah, they take the value <laughs> created. Um, you know, sometimes it's the whole amount of value, sometimes it's a portion. But in most cases, the way that we understand it, all the value is taken in exchange for the workers getting a wage for their time and for the efforts that they put in. This is really, I mean, it's basic stuff. I'm sure you've talked about with plenty of guests before, Mm -hmm. right? And so that was kind of the um, that was a, a relationship dynamic that I was never really aware of. And then I, you know, I started the studio with Tyler. Um, I've, I've loved every second of running the studio and everything but as soon as we brought on you know, other producers other engineers employees basically mm-hmm. there was this power dynamic introduced where it was like well now I have like control over whether or not you make money all yeah. these different things and I think for me that's kind of when I started to develop my worldview a little bit more and kind of feel like you know I I'm very much like um, a fan Of the idea of someone owning their own life yeah (laughs) their own labor and their their own own labor their own time it should belong to to you as as a person right and i feel like that basic level of independence you know autonomy is something that most people can get on board with right like i don't think that there's a single person out there who doesn't think they should have control over their own you know body Mm -hmm. right you know (laughs) their body their time their labor you know their mind all of that stuff so anyways I'm getting long-winded with this but the idea is that working at a a recording studio after founding it and being on kind of both sides as an owner and operating doing owner stuff and then operating as a laborer doing recording engineering producing and stuff like that it kind of started leading me down um, this this path of recognizing that for me I would feel a certain level of freedom or liberation, essentially owning my own labor, right? Yeah. And so that basically meant that the power dynamic of me being an owner or me being a worker just couldn't work. And so the the intention was always to be self-employed, right? Yeah. Um, which is the epitome of owning your own labor. And so here I am now doing a lot of music production completely independently. No one else is landing those sales for me. No one else is doing the labor for me. I, I own it and I do all the labor myself. Um, and it's been an interesting journey because, you know, you it, there's this element of like, you you get into one certain position or area of life and then you learn something and then you realize, oh, these newfound views are kind of contradictory with how mm-hmm. I'm living my life. Yeah. And then it's hard to necessarily always like step out of that easily because it's, it's so convenient to to stay in that position right yeah um, but I think for me being able to to step into a more independent role where I don't have to rely on you know someone else doing any work for me or someone you know landing a sale and then taking a portion of like the profits or whatever mm-hmm. it is a nice position to be in yeah. So I think I might have gotten away from your question no <laughs> that,
0: that does answer my question and especially like one of the things that I really liked about, and it might have been what we were talking about earlier, is just where you kind of, you recognize the dynamic between you and the people that you were employing as well. Because, um, you know, uh, everybody would want to own their own labor. You know, like we were, what you were just saying, like where everybody wants to have control over their body, bodily autonomy, <laughs> uh, shout out, fuck you to Supreme Court. Um, <laughs> but like, everybody wants to have that um, freedom over their own time and their labor and their choices. And then, so they can justify starting a business to own their own labor and then I think where where uh, you know capitalists or business owners just really get lost is they they forget that they start owning someone else's labor Mm -hmm. and they have to create that dynamic between people because I mean I've been uh, working as a manager for about two almost three years now and it was a trip like it, it's been a trip to like try and just be like oh wait I got to value the people that my position kind of inherently devalues yeah
1: the cognitive dissonance is, is yeah, insane dude.
0: exactly so it's just hard to like to break out of that and that's that's why I've uh, I'm so happy for you being able to own your own labor and not only owning your own labor but being able to not try to own someone else's labor and being very collaborative in nature the the way that you are working with artists is in a collaborative space in order to help each other and i think that's that that should be the basis of of all of our labor in a lot of ways
1: i think so i think every time i i mean every time any of these conversations come up with people in my circles because i run with people that are from all walks of life great friends and people i've known for a long time that fall into like into like a very conservative mindset and then you know more recent friends and people in my life that are you know very much aligned with anarchist or socialist mm-hmm. values and everything and then everybody in between you know like you know liberals and stuff <laughs> like that too and so it's interesting seeing like this extreme like preserve the status quo kind of mindset versus like this other extreme of like um dismantle literally everything yeah, you think you know destroy it all and like feel like I grew up with one and then made my way slowly to the other mm-hmm. side right for me I think the biggest thing always comes back to the idea of like I want to I, I think that for me and I thought something I feel like a lot of people can get along like on board with and maybe they just don't understand exactly how it looks but it's the idea that i want to succeed or fail by my own like merit mm. you know and we absolutely don't live in a meritocracy you know it's yeah. very it's more nepotism than anything else that yeah. runs especially the united states mm-hmm. but i think that i love the idea of being able to succeed and do well because i have like honed my craft in my industry right mm-hmm. in our in the industry of audio i would want to believe that i you know get deals or get contracts because i am just that good Mm -hmm. and because i've put that work in or that i you know i fail because i have not put the work in and because i'm not that good right Mm -hmm. and i would like to believe that yeah like my livelihood depends solely on am i making am i do I believe in myself enough and am I I putting the time and the effort in to actually make these things happen for myself? And the reality of the situation is that that is not what the average working person in the United States experience. Uh There is almost no job where hard work is universally rewarded. Uh And if it is, it always has some sort of catch on top of it or if it is, They offer you like a $2 raise when the value you create is much higher than (laughs) that, right? And so like, um, I I think that for me, it's the recognition that, okay, you want to start a business, you want to make your own money, you want to live on your own merit or whatever, you want to work for yourself, that type of stuff. Like, it's a great ambition to have. I think where a lot of people fall short and where I think the intersection comes in is the fact that... That might be great for you, but you, as soon as you start bringing on employees, people that are under you, one, you're making it, you're creating a power dynamic where that same like principle you want to live by does not apply to your workers mm. and you also aren't doing it completely on your own merit anymore because nope. your workers are the one creating the value yeah. now it's like okay when you were the one doing those cold calls landing those sales you know going door to door doing that work and everything like that like yeah absolutely you were in charge of it and you were living a very ethical and even like a very socialist aligned life cuz mm-hmm. socialism has nothing to do with like free stuff like we are always told right it has everything to do with your relationship to the means of production right but as soon as someone else is there and they are doing that labor and you're doing something else the dynamic shifts completely Mm -hmm. right which leads into the idea of you know cooperative work which we talked about yes i was
0: gonna ask i was gonna make sure we talked about this (laughs) (laughs) my
1: so i every single time i have learned about a cooperative a co, you know, a co-op, mm-hmm. any anything where the the group of people working collectively owns it, collectively succeeds or fails by the group's efforts. You know, like a a college group project or mm-hmm. whatever type yeah. thing. Um, I have always found it to be so much more efficient and mm. and positive, and it just benefits those people. Empowering. So much more and not only is it empowering there's so many situations where sales have been improved if you want to look at it from even a, a relatively pro-capitalist yeah. perspective right which who cares but <laughs> but like we're all about quality of life for the mm-hmm. workers I think which is is something that most people can get behind right yeah. and so like you look at I mean I was just talking with some friends yesterday about the 2008 um, housing market crash mm. and They call it the gap, which is the general accounting principles were kind of formed after that and our general rules that, you know, whenever you're buying a house, most groups, all groups actually will follow like fixed mortgages and everything like that. So your mortgage doesn't increase with inflation or whatever. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And these aren't things that were enforced by any government or anything like that. They're just things that collectively everyone was just kind of like, yeah, these need to be a thing after this crash. Right. And people collectively just decided like these are important and it improved the quality of life and the safety for homeowners and everything just exponentially. Right. Which is. Obviously, a good thing for yeah. people to feel like they are safe and secure in their own homes, right? Yeah, of course. Um, but even even beyond stuff like that, I I see so many situations where a manager or a boss actually bottlenecks the productiveness of the workers mm-hmm. in a certain situation. And when you give the workers the ability to kind of decide, like this is the most efficient, this is going to be the best, this you know even this makes the most sales or whatever mm-hmm. that type of stuff it almost always goes better and that's not something I feel like can be very easily disputed based on evidence. <laughs> yeah, so. right. Um,
0: especially uh, I mean, you were we were talking about beforehand uh, Mark Fisher's capitalist realism mm-hmm. and one of the things that he talks about, one of the realisms of capitalism is the bureaucracy of it and that's kind of what <laughs> I was thinking, you know, just the bottlenecking of ideas to make sure that it all comes top down, you know, to make sure that we're following the corporate regulations, the corporate rules and things like that. Um, and it's funny how, you know, we think of capitalism as being so efficient uh, because of this like executive structure and a very uh, authoritarian structure and yet it's very much like shooting itself at the foot. Yeah. But it's more, more about control than it is about um, actually being efficient and actually uh, being productive and for um, you know benefiting the people of society that it claims to benefit.
1: Oh, absolutely. I, I think that the ironic thing about, um, about this particular economic system and an interesting plight that we have just being normal people living within it is that we, we kind of hear a lot, of these ideas, like you said, like capitalism breeds like innovation mm-hmm. or whatever, or it's very efficient and everything. Um, but then we always look at ways that capitalism has, you know, is inefficient or does not breed innovation. And then there's always this apologetics going on where it's like. Oh, well, that's because of the, the government, this, you know, mm-hmm. because, oh, that's corporatism, this, that, yeah. or, oh, oh that's because of lobbying. Cronyism. Or whatever. Cronyism. Yeah. And it's just kind of like, well, that does not, I mean, sure, whatever. Maybe it's the government doing this. Maybe it's crony capitalism, mm-hmm. whatever that means. But, It exists in the situation we have now. And I'm not really personally interested in talking about theoreticals. I'd much rather talk about like, okay, well, the situations we live in are ones where corporations do lobby government officials. And that's not something that we have any, like, a lot of people love the founding fathers, you know, right. Mm -hmm. But the founding fathers could have never predicted something like the current circumstances of how corporations in impact you know, policy, like federal policy and everything. So it's just kind of like the fact that there are no like explicit ways to not necessarily like punish, but to discipline and regulate or take care of that just kind of shows that government, more government is not a way to fix capitalism. Mm -hmm. Actually, they're kind of in bed together. Oh, (laughs) yeah. Yeah.
0: I'd I'd say that (sighs) capitalism uh, controls government at this point and then government really just uses its military power to uh, Mm. enhance and maintain capitalism Yeah,
1: government is you know we we hear the phrase a lot the government has a monopoly on violence right Mm -hmm. which is I mean for anybody listening is basically the idea that any violence enacted by the government tends to be viewed by the government as just and as you know a preservation of this or that you know whatever usually it's the preservation of capital yep. right like if someone misses mortgage payments and is going to be evicted and everything like that the, no you can't do anything like, no one's gonna. You, if a government official comes and is like, this doesn't happen, this isn't how kicking people out works necessarily. But if someone <laughs> were to come and be like, all right, you guys missed your mortgage payments, you have to get out of this house or whatever, mm-hmm. you can just be like, no, and slam the door in their face. But the way they enforce it is with the police, right? Mm-hmm. Like, the police is the arm of the government, and that's yeah. how they enforce evictions yep. and everything like that. Same with when businesses get. You know, robbed or whatever. It's always the government enforcing the preservation of of capital. capital. Right. And, you know, we see the same thing when when labor strikes happen or when protests or riots happen and everything like that. The when capital is threatened the government will step in to preserve capital so mm-hmm. they are absolutely neck and neck and they not neck and neck they they absolutely need to be joined at the hip together in order to be preserved mm-hmm. which is the why the idea of anarcho capitalism which is again not real anarchism yeah. <laughs> doesn't work because how can you enforce capital when you do not have in enforcing agency, right? I don't even know. I <laughs> guess the
0: only way that that could possibly work is if the capitalists get so big that they create their own military, right? Um, and when I guess you could say that that is happening in a way, but I think I think it's a lot more complex than that. And the way the government has been sort of like subsumed and made Im- impotent by capital <laughs> is just insane. But like what you were saying about how. Um, We have we sort of have these two big monsters that we're trying to fight which is capital and then the protector of capital and and it makes sense why people can just feel so i don't know doom and gloom and like it can't happen and also what we were talking about with mark fisher you know the idea that there is no alternative Mm. um and so obviously this this um This podcast is about trying to find a new alternative. It is about trying to build a new alternative that is not founded on bloodshed and destruction. And uh, one of the the scary questions that I've had that I'm still grappling with is just how the hell do we challenge a powerhouse like the United States military (laughs) um, without having our own United States military? And I don't expect you to answer that right now, but I'd, (laughs) I'd love to hear your thoughts on kind of on that struggle and just the struggle of trying to. Figure out how to build a new world when such massive monsters are, you know, at our doorstep. Totally. Or more like controlling our lives. <laughs> That's a big
1: question right there. <laughs> and I think that anybody who pretends to have a great answer for it is probably just kidding themselves. Yeah, for real. <laughs> I think that the the difficulty of being anyone who is not completely into this system. Like if you're not a conservative and if you're not a liberal then you're kind of left with a lot of questions because like you said, capitalist realism gives you, it it kind of pollutes your brain into thinking like that. This is almost like human nature, like Mm. that we could never do something else. Right. Mm -hmm. But the reality of it is like when, and this is a quote that I love um, when the monarchs were still in power and when the system of the the economy the economic system was monarchy for virtually every country the peasants could not imagine a system other than that mm. right and i'm sure that there are people who were like yeah the lords take a lot but you know it's the best that we have right it's better <laughs> than like the barbaric stone ages or whatever type <laughs> thing and now we hear people say like yeah capitalism's not perfect but it's the best that we have mm. and why would you ever say like oh it's not perfect but it's the best we have and then use that as a way to say let's we don't keep need it to, going. yeah let's keep it going we don't need to progress right i think that even people who are extremely conservative or extremely liberal or whatever um who are both very you know pro-capitalist groups feel like there are some problems and maybe they feel like there are some problems within capitalism for different reasons Mm -hmm. or whatever but if you recognize there are problems why would you just like not seek for for something better Mm -hmm. right and the idea of reforming capitalism is so it's so tired. We've tried mm. reforming it for how many years at this point, and mm-hmm. it just keeps it's chugging mutating. along. Yeah. Right? I
0: think it's mutating. It keeps it keeps subsuming everything that, right. that tries to change it.
1: Exactly. That's that's actually a very powerful feature, feature of the system, too, is that capitalism absorbs all of its critiques and mm. then sells them back to you. <laughs> um, God. And uh, this is a bit of a tangent. I'll get back to the main question. But one thing I love is a quote. The, another quote, so lots of quotes, I guess, but this <laughs> quote is basically nobody consumes the way that anti-consumerists do, <laughs> <Ooh>. <laughs> which is a scathing criticism, obviously. But it applies to you know leftists as well. No one, no one consumes capitalist products as much as anti-capitalists do, in a lot of cases. And sometimes it feels like a simplification. And if you know, if like if a if a if a liberal or a conservative individual says that then yeah it's probably coming from a place of like huh le- leftists are so dumb bro yeah. <laughs> like which Shooting themselves know, in the foot. Yeah, like yeah, like you're shooting yourself in the foot, which it's like, yes, I, I am dumb, but it's not because I'm a leftist, <laughs> right? <laughs> so but it's um it's interesting because you do see a lot of like younger people who are getting into, you know, Marxist theory or, you know, anarchist theory and stuff like that. And there's this huge influx of them purchasing materials or things or articles of clothing or whatever that they hope represent that right mm. like some of the best selling shirts on some of those etsy shops are like the che Guevara shirts yeah. or like the fidel castro shirts or whatever mm. which i got problems with those guys even as a leftist myself right yeah. but it's interesting to kind of see that that's like the the reality in which that we live where it's like and this is by no means a way of saying like, oh, you participate in society, yet you want to change society. Like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, like the Ben Shapiro <laughs> argument is is not applicable. It's garbage, yeah. It, it's not a real argument either. Mm-hmm. It's like a gotcha, and it's not even a good one, right? Yeah. But I think that the I like that's capitalist realism for you which is it's even for leftists it is hard to see a world without capitalism yeah. and so whenever we imagine it it's always like destruction and everything and then mm-hmm. some fictional utopia that looks nothing like the world that we currently live in mm-hmm. Um but I think personally it it really doesn't come down to like um it doesn't come down to like a people's military or, yeah, <laughs> or anything yeah. like that. I, I think that a lot of, you know, Marxist Leninist folks are are very much pro like the it's called the dictatorship of the proletariat. Right. Which I'm mm-hmm. sure you know about, which is the idea that um, m- Marxism and socialism as an extension really needs to be enforced in order to completely expunge capitalism and everything. Mm. And that might be an ungracious way of framing that, but I'm not a Marxist, so I want to, like, apologize yeah. <laughs> for <laughs> you're it. you're just saying this is, what, this is what they say. Right, exactly. This is, I mean, that's the idea. That's Marxist mm-hmm. theory. Marx Even Marx thought, like, there needs to be, like, a a governing body of the proletariat in order to expunge capitalism and usher in socialism, right? Mm. Which is kind of like we saw the nightmare version of that with the USSR and Stalin mm-hmm. and everything like that, you know? Um, But I think that for me to kind of come back to your initial initial question, which is like, how do we how do we combat this? Like, what can we even do for me? It all comes down to what I believe is the most powerful tool that the worker has, which is the ability to withhold their labor. Mm. Um, And not only just that, but by extension, the ability to collectively bargain or collectively strike. Negotiate. A, a negotiate, yeah. Because when the playing field is not level, because the class hierarchy here is owner and worker, right? Mm-hmm owner has so much more control over our lives. We have no control over our Mm -hmm. owner's lives. We have no say in who, you know, our CEO is or who our manager is in most cases and everything, right? It's not an elected thing. Capitalism doesn't take elections, Mm -hmm. right? And even worse, (laughs) like what you were
0: talking about earlier, where um, the laws and structures of our society are built up to protect that capitalist. They're they're built up to protect that owner and not the workers.
1: Exactly. So the, the government structures behind it are not in your favor as like a worker, right? And so what do you need to do to even the playing field? And the syndicalists had it right, you know, all those decades ago. You need to band together with your other workers and everything, right? I see this sentiment lately that, you know, your coworkers aren't your friends. Your coworkers are people that you shouldn't like. You should have very hard boundaries with them and everything. And I agree to some extent. Mm-hmm. But you have more in common with your fellow coworker than you do with your boss. And bootlicking your boss isn't going to get you anywhere. Mm-hmm. But you and your coworkers getting on the same page, being united, liking each other. That's even an essential part. Yep. And then, you know, bargaining for a better situation. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't even need to always necessarily start with a strike. But a strike is a very effective tool. It can start with like, hey, we as a team feel like this mm-hmm. is a better way to approach this or whatever. Those little things are... In my opinion the most powerful tool that we have which is you know it's unity essentially solidarity exactly solidarity that's that's the key word in almost every one of these instances any leftist knows the word solidarity (laughs) right (laughs) and it's the idea that you know by ourselves we have no power but together we are like as an entire labor force that is the power to cripple an entire country in Mm. in a day right and obviously we have we are very divided right now. The internet misinformation's been doing a good job at making everybody think that someone else is the problem. When mm-hmm. the reality is, like, we have more in common with each other than not. Me, Always. I mean, someone who is—I I am Asian American. My father's an immigrant. You know, like, um, gender non-conforming stuff. You know, sex, diverse sexuality. Like, all all this all this stuff. You know about me that is not kind of fitting into to to what is socially acceptable as, like, a man and stuff like mm-hmm. that, um, you know, my view, my, the fact that I am a feminist, the fact that I am a leftist or whatever, I still have more in common with, like, the average hillbilly down in, like, Alabama than I ever will with Jeff Bezos, you yeah. know? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, like, and I think that for me, that's the thing that kind of prevents me from completely saying, like, like I will never even attempt with this group or that group like obviously I don't want to get killed by a group of bigots or anything like yeah. that but I'm not going to shut myself off completely for from like you know a, a straight white man who drives a truck sunglasses mm-hmm. And everything like that, because I feel like in most ways, I would be able to connect with him before I'd ever be able to connect to Elon Musk. Yeah And so to kind of fully, you know, concisely answer the question, which I took like 15 minutes to do, <laughs> is, is wonderful. For me, I believe that your bargaining power as an individual and with, you know, other individuals within your circles, I believe that does more to create radical change than just about anything else does Mm. and i believe that there is no like capitalism is extremely good at maintaining itself i'm actually one of those rare leftists that think capitalism is good at a lot of things you Mm. know um and that is because i lived it for so you know the longer i owned a business and was you know Uh, part of the capitalist class and everything like that, you know, technically maybe still am because I still have shares in the business. Yeah, yeah. Like, but the longer that I am a business person in my own right, the more anti-business I become, right? Mm. And I feel like that is just kind of the reality of the situation when you recognize that it puts you at odds with your friends and family Mm. by extension of, you know, how your relationship to workers and stuff like that. And so for me, I don't genuinely believe that capitalism will be defeated by like a huge, armed revolution that is going to like kill all the officials in office or whatever. And like, you know, if I claim to believe that and want to go for that, yeah, I'd be put on like a watch list and everything like that. (laughs) But what I do believe is that, um, I mean, think about it this way. People always say vote for, vote with your dollar, right? Like, which is, is, is dumb. It doesn't typically work. Right. (laughs) But what I do believe is the idea that, how does striking work striking is a way to say we're withholding our labor which is going to cease your profits until we are treated better or our conditions are met mm-hmm. right which is you know that was better than the workers having guns and threatening to kill the ceo back yeah. in the day right that was the mm-hmm. alternative that was relatively peaceful as yeah. a result right yeah and i i think that it applies in all other areas of life too they cannot arrest an entire neighborhood of people that just stopped paying their mortgage all at once. Right. (laughs) And, and for me, that's what it comes down to is the idea that if you can just get your next door neighbor on, on board with you, like tenant strikes are extremely effective. Mm. Like our rent is ridiculous. The landlord hasn't fixed anything us as tenants are withholding our rent until our demands are met. Right. Mm. And a lot of those actually end up turning into cooperatively owned apartment buildings as a result. Right. And so for me, that's what I believe is truly like the way to make legitimate change. It's like you and the people around you have more in common than anything else. So maybe, you know, for those listening, um, stop dunking on like trump fans stop dunking on liberals and everything and maybe try to radicalize them yes instead. stop every division. exactly like even the <laughs> even the most like radical racist trump supporter has something in them that is more aligned with full autonomy and leftist ideas than than not right mm-hmm. like there's always You know, you can probably go to your Republican mom or dad and spout all these anarchist ideas and they'll agree with you until you call it anarchism, right? (laughs) call it a scary word. (laughs) But yeah, for me, that's the thing I think that is the most powerful. Like Mm. rent strikes, labor strikes and everything. But even beyond that, just coming together with your niche communities, right? Mm. Um, And when you do that enough, then the lights go out for the government and for these corporations because no longer you subjecting yourselves to them right Mm. like what if we all just you know what if all of the employees of the local you know like what's a good example like the local best buy or Mm. whatever just just to take a random store if all the employees just randomly started like growing vegetables in their gardens and helping each other out outside of the need for the money that best buy pays them best Buy has become elite you know they're going around geek squad does stuff but what if they're just going around fixing other people's technology on their own what Mm. if they're you know buying that stuff from independent people who have built their own stuff right like i i I mean the ideas are getting a little bit like foggy in my brain because i've been (laughs) kind of droning (laughs) on but the idea is there right it's like we only need like the we don't need these corporations and the government all that much but they mm. do need us to fall in line with yep. them
0: in order to maintain and prop yeah. up the system but
1: what happens when we all step out of line
0: then they can't right? withhold themselves or they can't keep themselves propped up exactly one of the things that uh, you said that i really really loved is just kind of your the recognition of um like the value of our co-workers um, that's something i've been thinking about a lot lately mostly because you know i uh humans are social creatures and we are, we are designed for a need for community, right? And our community has been like deracinated and like destroyed and it's been replaced with a business environment, with, mm. a, with a job environment. In fact, I, I would say that the closest thing we have to community anymore is our job. And the most <laughs> disgusting part about it is that it is structured in a way so that we must be competing with everybody that we work with. Hmm. And we're, we're set up to try to si- somehow simultaneously try to work together to get enough profits for the business because it somehow helps all of us. Um, and then also like, oh, I need to be making more money than them. I need to be working harder than them and I need to be doing better than them um, because I want to make more money and it's better for me if that's the case. And we need to not talk about wages. We need to not talk about this stuff because then we're going to be punished by our overlord, tyrannical daddy. <laughs> but that's so what I loved. It's just this idea that like if we can kind of just embrace this new com- community and actually like the people we work with and care about the people we work with so that we can create solidarity and negotiate power, dude, there's nothing that can stop you. And uh, and I love the idea of tenant strikes and everything like that. It just, man, just when you said like, yeah, they can't arrest an entire town for not paying their mortgage, it's like, <laughs> well fuck like if they you know let's say they tried they mobilized the military against them like this would just be the most grand display of like look this system isn't here to work for you they turn
1: the rest of the american people on them very quickly. i mean we've seen what happens when we have repeated footage and evidence of the police being not only incompetent but intentionally negligent at Mm. their jobs right like is it pronounced uvalde i think so yeah so i mean Everybody kind of has been following and what's been going on with their faith in the police has rapidly declined because mm-hmm. of that whole situation and that is also you know, has cascaded from George Floyd and everything mm-hmm. like that too. Imagine the backlash and the out the you know, the outroar and everything like that, if an entire town, like if all of Lehigh just stopped paying their mortgage and they mobilized the military to like arrest those people and everything like that. Yeah. Like there's no way the rest of Utah would just be like, oh uh, yeah. Like okay. they got what they deserve. Yeah. That was just, you know, exactly. like especially some, with the internet, like yeah, some people will double down, way. but like, yeah, especially with the internet, like the government wants to make you think that it's constantly on your side and Mm. everything, right? Which is why they will occasionally sacrifice a pawn (laughs) in order to (laughs) quell the people's rage. Like Derek Chauvin, the guy that Mm. killed George Floyd, was sentenced, right? And that Mm -hmm. was largely, you know... There's no way that he couldn't have n- not been, the, sure. But it was like largely... transnational
0: outcry? Exactly. No, no but it was
1: largely a way to quell the people's rage and get mm-hmm. them to go back into a, in a place where it's like, okay, we'll just deal with whatever shitty stuff is happening yeah, in our lives, exactly. right? That's just how capitalism is. It, it will sacrifice pieces of itself in order to maintain its longevity yeah. and its supremacy. And for me, the idea of... I don't know. I am very much... a a romantic at heart and everything and I miss feeling like I had a community the way that I did when I was like 10, 11, 12 years old all my buddies and me, we'd go ride our bikes throughout the neighborhood. There was like 12, 13 of us, you know, like- That's an
0: entourage, man. Yeah, like, that's yeah. like a
1: gang, that's like yeah. the <laughs> mafia. That's <laughs> the like the fifth grade mafia, bro. <laughs> and so we'd go to the 7-Elevens, we'd hang out together, we'd buy each other like snacks when one of the others couldn't afford it. Uh, and to me, that is the biggest display of camaraderie that mm. I, I, I feel like a lot of people sometimes miss out on, mm. you know? um. I mean, car infrastructure contributes to it. Capitalism, obviously, is a huge contributor to it. But we've lost our community in a way to the point that we actually perceive our next door neighbors as more of an adversary than like mm-hmm. you had mentioned, like, a like, an ad- like a threat, like, you know, I'll oh, get off my property, yep. you dumb kids or whatever. Mm-hmm. When it's like, you could have taken that opportunity to nurture and help those kids out and oh. create a sense of like, I can go to that old grumpy guy when I need something or yeah. whatever. Imagine how powerful that is when, when you have your elders that are around you and you feel like your elders want to connect to the youth, mm-hmm. you know, like, and for me, that is something that I'm willing to risk a lot to be able to have again, because I genuinely just don't feel like I have that in my in my current situation. Mm-hmm. I feel very privileged and very lucky to be in a situation where I live in a house. You know, my wife and I do really well. We make decent money and everything like that. But I do feel a huge lack of community locally. Mm-hmm. I have somewhat of a community with music stuff, somewhat of a community with, you know, because of my wife's work and everything Mm -hmm. like that but i'd love a community where we just talk about like oh yeah like i made i i'm growing radishes oh well i'm (laughs) growing tomatoes you want to trade some radishes and tomatoes right Right? (laughs) Right? like that's my that's like my anarchist wet dream Mm -hmm. right which is the idea it's like i want to trade vegetables with my neighbors you know i want to walk my dog and i i want to go like sniff the flowers bro and like do all these other things play music in like the local community all these different things are things that we have had at one point in the past and we largely have lost due to the way that things have developed. And as the workplace becomes more of a competitive place rather than a cooperative place where Uh every piece counts, um, we begin to be alienated more and more from each other, which is why Mm. it is so difficult to like, there's... I don't want people to die, so I don't think that the people's army fighting the US government's army would be (laughs) be great. It (laughs) wouldn't be practical. It wouldn't work out. And there's no way it would even be able to happen, right? Um, But I do think that when you withhold yourself in some ways, you take away the food for the machine, right? a a car can't run without gas so stop giving that car gas right (laughs) and so that's just genuinely for me what I seek is not some like grand leftist utopia or anything like that I just seek community Mm. and I think that for me what led me to the perspective I have now was not some, it was not like luxury gay space communism or, <laughs> or, or whatever memes. It's, full, it's like fully automated fully luxury, automated luxury space communism. Yeah, that's yeah like that's not what led me to this perspective. What led me to this perspective is not feeling connected to the people mm. around me. I'm a very extroverted person, and to feel like lonely when I could just in a different world be able to step outside and talk to people and everything like that. Yeah, I feel like that's what why I am in the position I am. Mm. And I believe firmly that capitalism puts you at odds with c- your community and makes it even more so very unsustainable to be a part of a community in a healthy way for a long amount of time.
0: Yeah, it feels like daunting and and almost, like even just talking right now, it's like, I wish I could do this with my neighbors. You know, I know that there's somebody out there who would just be like, well then do it, just do it. It's like, (laughs) yeah, we can do it if we just take the time and like work really hard and are willing to make mistakes and look stupid and feel stupid. But at the same time, like our structures are set up in a way so that it's like, it's a net loss to start making that transition and it's difficult. Um, But one of the things I I really wanted to start moving towards, that you brought up is just just the need for community and kind of like the romanticism about it which is like a big reason why I wanted to bring you on the podcast is b- this is all sounding like very spiritual principles and very spiritual like values and stuff and I think we're both uh, on the same page of understanding that capitalism like creates spiritual death and mm. and I think a big part of that is the you know the destruction of community and the destruction of of oneness and unity and um, and I kind of what One of my big questions is like can we have any sort of meaningful change without spirituality? Can we have any sort of meaningful transition to a better world without um, You know holding kind of spiritual principles such as community oneness and you know love What do you think?
1: That's a great question. I I mean, I have so many thoughts about it (laughs) (laughs) And uh, we could be here all night with the thoughts I have about it but I think that so I mean for context Um, I grew up extremely Mormon. Um, My parents, extremely Mormon. My dad, you know, found God when he was 15 and everything. He joined the Mormon church at 15 after immigrating from Vietnam at 10. And I went on a mission. I went back to Vietnam, which was, I maintain a still just incredible experience. Very spiritually and generationally like fulfilling for me i think
0: and one of the reasons for that is because you didn't you weren't allowed to proselyte there isn't that right Yeah, i was i we couldn't wear our tags there like Uh. we
1: couldn't approach someone and be like hey you want to learn about jesus or anything like that we had to like almost wait for people to talk to us and then say like oh we teach an english like class or we have an english club or whatever and then they would come there and once they were in the church then we could be open about like oh yeah like we also teach about like Christ and yeah. stuff like that you know and for me it, it ended up being a really interesting way of forcing me to connect with people as people before mm. I was trying to sell them the church yes. Right. <laughs> which is so, so. funny
0: because it's, 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 it's sort of like manipulative it, <laughs> on the church's part but right, it's also right. like very nourishing for you who just gets yeah. to go back to you know where your family came from oh absolutely and actually generate real connection with people
1: it was is very beautiful like it, I could you know I could become the most like anti-religion atheist on the planet or whatever and i don't think i could ever say that i my mission was you know a terrible thing because Mm. for me the the things that i remember the most aren't like oh we taught this person about they can't drink tea or coffee and i felt the spirit (laughs) like none of that stuff is stuff i even remember anymore Uh what i remember is the conversations where someone genuinely connected with me And I was able to just talk to them about their lives and help them feel like they were finding community, which is the biggest thing that is still just like my biggest takeaway from my mission. The church is very small in Vietnam. The Mormon church has a very tiny presence. And when I was there, it was even smaller. Two, no, three branches for the entire country. And for those that you don't know, a branch is just a smaller version of a ward. Um, when oh, there's not enough members to be called a ward. It's, it's not that important, but it's a congregation, right? There were three congregations in all of Vietnam when I was there, which was in 2014 to 2016. And each of those congregations had maybe a total of 30 to 40 active members. So for the whole country, you got about 100 active Mormons, right? Wow. Which was insane, yeah. right? But the thing that was beautiful about it was not... You know They were a small numbers and they still pushed on and, and loved the Lord or whatever. The thing that was wonderful about it is it was mostly younger people between the age of like 17 to 23, 24 or whatever. And anybody who came in and wanted to keep coming came because of community the church members there and the vietnamese people in general were incredibly good at creating a sense of community where anybody felt safe anybody felt Mm -hmm. like they were fully accepted regardless of their situation and so i mean a lot of a lot of people joined the church because of that you know but what they really came for was the community right um which highlights our earlier point which is most people come to anything and seek anything because they seek community Mm -hmm. right and those people in Vietnam really sought community and they found it and i am incredibly happy for them and i that's why i don't have a whole lot of like you know regrets or any of that stuff about my mission my relationship to the church days is extremely complicated we don't really need to get into it but to answer your question i do feel like there is this extremely essential element of spirituality that goes into creating not only that sense of community but to moving past something like capitalism as an economic system I think that I do I mean I have to be honest and say that I don't think that um, religion organized religion is great (laughs) (laughs) yeah to say the least and but I don't think that that is because of capitalism because it was like that long before we even had capitalism religious Mm. fundamentalism has always been a huge problem regardless of the society it's just that the way that capitalism utilizes it is it is what the world that we live in now Mm. right and that's the problem right is that we see so many people that go to church and it's almost like a way of feeling morally superior superior right rather than a way of feeling genuinely connected to each other Mm. to the earth or to an you know an extraterrestrial being a god or whatever Mm -hmm. right so for me there's this interesting dichotomy of being raised super mormon kind of having a bit of a complicated relationship with it now and also being a leftist because Mm -hmm. i truly believe that spirituality is such a huge and essential aspect of human existence but I don't personally find it super fulfilling in the context of which I've been given it, Mm. right? Um, And so, yeah, to answer your question, I think it's absolutely necessary. And the way that looks is completely different for everybody. Um, And interestingly enough, my journey into leftist thought began because I just started studying Jesus Christ, the person more closely, (laughs) right? (laughs) Interesting. is he a socialist? Yeah, interestingly (laughs) enough, when you really look at Jesus's life, like he's very much aligned with anti-capitalist principles, Mm -hmm. to to say the least. Yeah,
0: exactly. Um, Yeah, I love that so much. And one of the things that you kind of brought up is just uh, sort of like this weird dichotomy between religion and spirituality and how like most of us i don't know when you talk to people and you start talking about spirituality they immediately think of religion usually in like a reactive like you know post-traumatic way Mm -hmm. um and so it, it's kind of it's weird because we've only seen spirituality really um, owned and housed by uh, Religion and so one of the things I'm really curious to talk to you about is just whether you think that we can even like Separate the two or if there is just simply has to be a new kind of religion mm-hmm. um, If there needs to you know if religion similar to the economic systems that we're talking about has to be equally owned You mm-hmm. know and if there just needs to be some sort of shift there and I, I wanted to get your thoughts on that so
1: I love that question. I think that there's a lot of different perspectives on it. And I actually don't know if there's like one answer I think is just universally right. Mm-hmm. But for me, what I think it comes back down to is when you look at the word anarchist, it's the opposition to hierarchy, mm-hmm. A, which is no, archists, hierarchy, hierarchists, mm-hmm. right? So. No hierarchies, right? Anarchism as an ideology is about the rejection of hierarchy because it does just doesn't justify its existence, right? Mm-hmm. And religion, organized religion, is a hierarchy, right? Mm-hmm. There is always a leader of said religion in the followers, and the followers are not able as individuals to have any real effect on the leader of the religions, mm-hmm. like life or anything like that. Yeah. Like me as like a Mormon, I can't go to the the president of the Mormon church and then just like be like, I'm not paying my tithing anymore. Hope you like, you know, lose all your money or whatever. Yeah. Like, <laughs> that's just absolutely not how it works. And yeah. it's not how the church is run or organized or anything like that. But it's a hierarchy and it's a hierarchy that is very akin to the hierarchy of capitalism. Right. Which, as we've been talking about, we are opposed to. Yeah. <laughs> it's unethical. <laughs> right. And so I believe that similarly, the hierarchy of a leader follower relationship within organized religion is also something that is unethical and wholly unnecessary to even attain spirituality in the first place. I think that there are absolutely people I have met that have attained a high and, you know, nirvana level of spirituality on their own, you know, by their own metrics and everything like that within a lot of these organized religions. But I do think that that is in spite of the religion, not Mm. because of the religion, like my, you know, some of the biggest mentors for me growing up and even like on my mission and everything like that, extremely spiritual people, very kind, helped me so much developing as a person. I'm very grateful for them but I genuinely don't really think that like the Mormon church taught them to be like that. No, not at <laughs> I think <all. laughs> that they just chose to be like that and mm-hmm. sought God almost independently mm-hmm. just, you know, with the tools that were provided by the religion that yep. they were born into. Exactly. and everything, Right. Yeah. And for me, that's kind of what I think it comes back to is like the tools to achieve spirit, a, a level of spirituality that you feel like suits you and everything are available. Um, but the, organized religion is actually making it harder for you to do it on your own terms mm. because they're saying you have to do it on our terms. This is yeah. the correct way to pray. This is the correct way to like read the Bible or whatever mm-hmm. type of thing. And so I think that I I don't actually believe that a future where organized religion continues to have spiritual supremacy makes sense if i'm being ideologically consistent and i'm against the hierarchy of capitalism i also have to be against the hierarchy of organized religion don't i right otherwise i'm a hypocrite exactly (laughs) like i can't claim to be like um this you know mormon anarchist or whatever when those two things just don't work together (laughs) (laughs) so (laughs) i think that for me (laughs) spirituality is a is is such a beautiful thing and it means something completely different to everybody but my own personal definition is how connected i am to my own emotions my perception of self the planet and the people around me Mm. um and that definition works for me it does not work for everyone else for some people it really is something cosmic and extraterrestrial in a way um for me it's not like that but it is always very gratifying whenever I can have a conversation like the one we're having now, where I feel, you know, intellectually enriched Mm. and emotionally enriched as well, because as someone who's extroverted and everything like that, um, and just as a human being in general, because we are like this, I crave connection. I crave Mm -hmm. social interaction and everything. Um, And so I always leave intellectually like rigorous conversations feeling so good yeah right? feeling like there is a purpose i'm happy mm-hmm. like i love that i was able to connect with this person i'm so grateful for this person in my life to me that's that's my version of spirituality yeah. is genuinely feeling connected right and which is why my journey ended up being so much of like the more i studied jesus's life the more connected to jesus i felt like as a per jesus as a person i mm-hmm. felt than anything else because like this is someone who refused to judge a woman who was caught cheating on her husband. This is someone who walked into the temple, saw people selling animal sacrifices within the temple, got pissed, made a whip, went and literally kicked them kicked out them of the temple, out, yeah. right? This is a person who is incredibly radical and who was so sarcastic and mean to the ruling body of <laughs> you know, of the Jews, the <laughs> yeah. Pharisees, right? That we now use the term Pharisee as a negative thing, right? Mm -hmm. Jesus was an incredibly cool guy, right? And I think the more I studied him without this idea of like, you know, always considering what happens after this life, you know, am I gonna be forgiven of my sins? When I stopped focusing so much on that and I focused more on like, I wanna know this person. I wanna Mm -hmm. know Jesus as the person. I think that I felt a greater connection to, you know, what I feel Christianity was always supposed to be, which was, very personal, very, mm. ve- you know, very much about the idea of like rejecting the status quo and seeking to create something better within the community. Jesus never sought to overthrow a government or anything like that. Jesus sought to build up the people around him, a mm. community and everything. And those people sought to do that same for each other because they internalized what Jesus said so much. And I think that is so fascinating. And I mean, as you can tell, that's what I base so much of my perspective on now. It's like, it's all about community. Like Jesus's community wasn't perfect. I mean, a guy in his community betrayed him, blah, blah, blah. We all know this if we were raised in a a Christian household, right? But what is so beautiful about it is that after Jesus died, that community grew stronger. Mm. I mean, eventually it was appropriated and you know turned in bastardized that's Mm -hmm. the that's the right word and everything and you know and now we have the Roman Catholic Church and all these offshoots of Christianity including the Mormon Church and stuff like that but the the very direct the people who had direct interactions with Jesus as we know from what's in the New Testament that was that was all about community that Mm -hmm. was all about the people around you and I think that that for me is why spirituality is so essential because you know when we say things like oh i felt that in my soul or whatever oh like oh that man that feeds my spirit or whatever we hear a lot of church people say that and Mm -hmm. we even sometimes just say that colloquially right um i think that that's very real i Mm -hmm. think that we do have a spirit i think we do have a soul and that is nourished by other people and by interacting with other people in a way that fulfills us like me having this conversation with you is emotionally and mentally stimulating Mm -hmm. and that's something i'm going to like hold on to and it's going to make the rest of my day better it's going to make the rest of my week better right um And I think sometimes people miss out on that. You know, you can have an incredibly great conversation with somebody at the supermarket, you know, and I think sometimes we're so averse to it because of the way that we've set up our society where Mm -hmm. we have to be skeptical of everybody, you know, and afraid of everybody. We have to be afraid of everybody, or, you know, and we're led to that because people are pushed to such drastic means just to survive Mm -hmm. that there's this inherent distrust. But when you really look at spirituality, it, the reason organized religion has become associated with spirituality, in my opinion, is because organized religion gives you the community. Mm. You don't have to create it yourself. It's already provided for you.
0: That's a great point.
1: Yeah, so you go to a church and that community is already there. Mm -hmm. You don't necessarily feel uplifted because of like... Oh, like I learned about Lot's wife that got turned into a pillar of salt because she looked back on her burning sin. Like <laughs> you don't feel the you don't feel spiritually uplifted from that. You still feel, no. feel spiritually uplifted because you're singing with the people around yeah. you. you. Music is incredibly good for you, right? You know, and doing music uh, with a group is even better for you because yeah. it's a group of people. You feel nourished because the people around you are asking you how you're doing and checking up on you, giving uh, you hugs, physical contact. Those are the things that are nourishing you. That's why you want to go to church. You don't want to uh, go to church because you're hearing these things about like oh well like you know the pastor told me I'm gonna burn in hell because I'm gay like yeah. you don't feel the spirit from that no not you at know all. and when I say feel the spirit that's mostly emotional and mm-hmm. mental like fulfillment, right? Yeah. You feel it from the people around you who give you a reason to feel like you belong on this planet. Mm. And to me, that's what is essential and why I even sometimes still go to church and everything. Yeah. Cause I love the Vietnamese community, which, you know, is, is in the ward that I grew up in. And so mm-hmm. that's where I go. And, you know, sometimes I'll translate with my dad at church and stuff like that. Cause I speak Vietnamese, he speaks Vietnamese. We translate for the Vietnamese members. Um, I'm serving my community, you know? That's and awesome. even if I have beef with some of the stuff being said at the pulpit, for me, what matters is that I'm giving someone else in my community, uh, you know, and a thing of service, and I'm yeah. helping them find their spirituality in their own personal way. Who am I to like say that someone else going to church and hearing a message about this or that isn't completely fulfilling them? You know, I mean, generally, yeah, I believe that it's the community. It's the people that make mm-hmm. you feel spiritually nourished and everything like that. But everyone does experience it a little bit differently. Yeah. And so that's my it's a little bit of a contradiction well, in a way. I, I, don't, I don't know but, if it is because
0: like I, I think you're I think you're really on to something here because um, one of the things that I you know, I really love Russell Brand. And one of the things he talks about because he you know, he's very spiritual mm-hmm. and he he always talks about how we should try to focus on what religions get right and what they get right in my opinion is community oneness and love and so I, I think that's that's kind of what I, I love that you bring that up because I've really seen that too when I whenever I've been talking with people who are Mormon and I'm just like and I've been able to get up the guts to just be like why <laughs> why are you Mormon and uh, you know if it's not like a fear-based reaction it's like well I want to be with my family forever and if I'm not Mormon I won't be um, which is Still need a need for oneness and their community and their love. It's usually like it's usually like well, you know The church came and helped me when I was hitting a hard time and it was yeah. like that was it You know that like people were there for them and they were able to establish a sense of community and have this Reciprocity and this love and this oneness and so I I love that you pointed that out because then what I'm starting to realize is that religion can't live in the individualism that we're creating in, in a way mm-hmm. you know like you can't have every single person having their own unique religion because I think the need is for community it's for that spiritual connection and that nourishment of of other people mm-hmm. um, so I, I really love that you brought that up and then uh, one thing I did kind of want to touch on because uh, it was kind of at the at the beginning of what you were saying where uh, you said that may, the main problem of religion is uh the hierarchy that that arises from it and and i i actually fervently agree with that because i do think that the the top down um hierarchy is extremely destructive and specifically just the idea that like there's one man or Usually one man, yeah, pretty much one man. It's very <laughs> patriarchal. Yeah, exactly. Who who is allowed to commune with God and therefore dictates all of the behaviors of the uh, of their subjugates, right? Mm. Um, and so, like, I, I definitely see that as an issue. And then um, this idea of having no hierarchy is actually very um, uh, very appealing to me. Mm. But I do want to play devil's advocate and uh, and kind of bring up this uh, this idea that that hierarchies are sort of naturally forming mm-hmm. and that they uh, there's a lot of ways in which hierarchies just simply align themselves and and uh, for all of Jordan Peterson's shit and being a garbage <laughs> person in a lot of ways um, I actually do value a lot of his views on spirituality and uh, and also just he brings up a good point of just like uh, the competence hierarchies that Mm. he talks about right how if you want something to be done well then you have to have competent person competent people leading those hierarchies and so uh, I kind of wanted to kind of wanted to throw that at you and see how how a non hierarchical religion could go um, without you know would it how could we stop it from coalescing into a hierarchy without um, actually damaging it uh, very fundamentally
1: Mm, that's interesting I mean, it's definitely a valid point, and I mm-hmm. think that the for me, I don't know if I really have to imagine it because I feel like it are, it already exists. Mm. Uh, religion, organized religions, without a hierarchy, already exist. So when we define hierarchy, it's the idea of one person having power over mm. another person in you know a given area or, or a given structure, right? Within some structure, right? And I think a big thing to remember is that when you look at a lot of these like, you know, autonomous groups or like take book clubs, for example. Mm -hmm. A facilitator can sometimes be a leader, but often the facilitator just facilitates. The facilitator Mm. does not have any power over anyone else. The facilitator only has an ability to dictate how the conversation goes because everyone else has agreed, hey, to keep order, this person's gonna facilitate, right? Because think of it this way in a book club a bunch of people sit down you know they talk about the books that they've been reading what they like they discuss those and everything one person facilitates but that person doesn't have an ability to just like kick someone else out yeah like that person can't just be like all right you have to leave like if it is a therapist that's a different thing we can talk about which is you know when you are actually qualified to act in that capacity right like if we're talking about like a surgery room that's something where it's like, yeah, listen to the doctor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. right? That's a person who is qualified. Mm-hmm. But that's the difference, right? Is that is an earned and necessary thing. Mm. Whereas when you think about when you think about things that are less pressing, like a religion or a book club, you can have people that are, you know, designated to do certain things in order to make it orderly and uniform or whatever. Mm. That does not necessarily mean they have power everyone over everyone else. And the difference too with hierarchies is hierarchies are involuntary. Mm. You don't have a choice who has power over you in most cases, like your boss at work. Mm -hmm. But with these things, people usually are like yeah like that, that person can facilitate and mm-hmm. then they're like oh yeah like if that person says we need to move on like we all agreed that mm-hmm. we're gonna move on you know yeah and usually a facilitator is really good at making sure they check the room in a, yeah, in a book yeah. club i've been in several book clubs and the facilitator is always really good at being like we're talking about this a little bit long Does like everyone want to move on yeah, <laughs> to something yeah, else yeah. right so it tends to be it is It tends to be one of those things where because it is voluntary and because it is not just like unilaterally made decisions and it's, you know, the position changes from person to person Mm -hmm. often. That is something where it's like, no, that's easily doable in so many like organizations that we haven't even thought about yet. Because as we've established, the people that know best in most fields are the workers. Like Mm -hmm. the plumber knows better better than the shareholder how to approach fixing a toilet, Mm -hmm. obviously, right? And so when it comes to like a church or whatever, the way I think that I I have enjoyed seeing it done in the past is like for, you know, a limited amount of time or every week, sometimes, sometimes it's every month to make it more convenient. There's a couple of people are facilitated to like do this, you know? you know, play the, play the piano or to, you know, end the meeting at an orderly time or Mm -hmm. whatever, or, you know, they'll share like their thoughts type of thing. It's very interesting because when I say all that stuff, some of the people might listening might be like, Oh, that's the Mormon church Yeah. because the Mormon church bishops are, you know, so they're not paid mm-hmm. they essentially facilitate in a lot of ways yeah. they all are only in that position for a limited amount of time as are everyone else with a calling right because that's mm-hmm. what they call responsibilities in the church the difference is that the bishop in a mormon church has the ability to take away your standing and reduce the your church. the level of standing you have within that organization whereas a facilitator
0: does not like, and they're not like voted on exactly they're
1: not voted on they it's it's very much something that comes off as very n- n- nepotistic in a way because mm. it's like most of the time a bishop a stake president a leader in some capacity is always chosen by someone else who just knows them already <laughs> yeah, yeah like very like no, how no, many times by God what do you exactly mean? like there is a huge population of South American Mormons of even like you know Asian Mormons and stuff like that we've never seen up until very recently like an Asian or a South American, like apostle or oh, leader, yeah. like president of like the twelve, right? Mm-hmm. It's usually people from Utah, and that's yeah. because they all know each other. Yeah. <laughs> so it's yeah. it's like, oh, well, I know this person. This person is a really good guy, so that person should be the next apostle. That's yeah. that's typically how it goes, yeah, right? Exactly. And then they, you know, they pray about it, receive revelation, all of that Mormon jargon that you know some people may not get, but yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's just like that's the difference between that and a community who says like, hey, for the purpose of making this community run smoothly, we need a facilitator for this. We need this for that or whatever. Right. Even a lot of nonprofit organizations are organized that way. Like some, some, I won't say all, but some organizations that are in the fight for civil rights, like some smaller organizations associated with Black Lives Matter, not Black Lives Matter itself, the organization, but some associations run like that. They run with a facilitator, with someone who you know, a group of people, not a person that handles like, you know, the finances and stuff like that. And it it typically rotates like they're Mm -hmm. never in that position for a long amount of time. And if they are in that position for a long amount of time, everyone else around them is rotating too to keep them accountable. Mm -hmm. Whereas how many times do you go to, you know, like my dad, for example, is an accountant and at his old job that he was at for around 20 ish years, all the people in the higher positions had been there for like 30 years and everything like that no one rotates them no one gets yeah. to keep them accountable and everything mm-hmm. right but to kind of make it i'm cuz i'm getting long winded again to kind of make it concise like when it comes to those hierarchies all it all it really takes is saying like what are the good things that these hierarchies are accomplishing that makes this a fulfilling experience for me to be part of this organization And then do that without a hierarchy, you know, it's, it's really not that hard when you think about it. Like take me for example, the hierarchy was someone else would produce the music at my studio and then they would send it to me for mixing and everything. Mm -hmm. Right. The simple solution is just the producer can be hired independently and then I can be hired independently. And then Mm -hmm. not only are we able to be fully autonomous, but we probably will have a better relationship at that point. Right. Yeah, Exactly. And that is something that is almost as simple as just saying like, okay, this week, John is going to facilitate our reading group. Mm-hmm. This week, Katie going to play the organ or something like that. And Katie, if you don't want to play the organ anymore, that's totally fine. Like Jacob can play the organ or something like that. Mm-hmm. And, and that is something a community is very good at deciding on yeah. together because yeah. ultimately, like we talked about, people have more in common with each other than they have with a, a, a billionaire. Yeah. right? So usually the people in your immediate community are going to have Pretty similar needs as you, mm-hmm. right? Like the people who live in this cul-de-sac right here are in very similar economic standpoints as I am, yeah. <laughs> and so when it comes to church stuff, everybody's typically going to church to have a very similar experience, which is connection mm. and some some sort of spiritual uplifting. Yeah. So they all want to achieve that, and their ways of to approach that might vary, but as long as it is achieved, they're sa- they're satisfied. They're happy, yeah. right? And you can absolutely structure it in a way where it's like, well, we don't need to have the weird private interviews where a bishop interviews like a 12 year old and asks them about their sex life and stuff like that, right? Like, is that necessary to the spiritual well being of a community, right? So, a community typically will have very similar needs. And so, they'll be very aligned when it comes to what, you know, (laughs) try to organize this, to how to organize it, right? Um, which is why general strikes work, because every worker for one company in one area of that company is probably being underpaid. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah definitely. Yeah. So I hope Very that answers that question. Well,
0: yeah, it actually does, because well, I mean, I specifically love just the idea that like or just you pointing out that communities can figure this stuff out. Like it doesn't need an executive hierarchical structure in order to solve these issues because like you said they have the same needs they Mm. they know what they need and so they can work these out together and i really think that you know capitalism and maybe even organized religion has really just like destroyed this idea from us it's like ripped away the idea that people can actually be autonomous and actually know how to take care of themselves Mm. um that's something i talked about on one of my earlier episodes uh with my friend casey he's like he's like i think people are pretty good at understanding what they want or what they need. Totally agree. And then the only way that they're gonna have that corrected is by you know dealing with reality. Mm-hmm. So if everybody's like, oh, we need this one thing, we're we're gonna pool all of our resources to get one like you know, uh, pop figurine of Bernie Sanders, then everybody's <laughs> gonna be like, holy shit, this is a waste of time, and then be able to learn from it. And like, we need to give communities, we need to give people the ability and the autonomy to make those decisions and to actually build those kinds of connections totally. so that they can actually figure that out on their own. I, I just, that was extremely valuable. I, I absolutely love that very, very much.
1: I'm glad to hear it. Yeah. No, I mean, I mean, for anybody listening out there, including mm-hmm. myself, cause I have to remind myself of this, like the, the redneck from the Southern States who doesn't have much of an education, that has bad grammar, works a really simple job. He's not actually as dumb as we think we yeah. are, <laughs> yeah. uh, like as as we think he is. Um,
0: he's got an experience of reality. He's got an experience of re-
1: ex- that's the perfect way to say it. His experience of reality is unique to himself. And that is actually invaluable. Right. Mm-hmm. I think for me, I actually have quite a few friends that are very like they were very open Trump supporters mm-hmm. in the 2020 election. And it was hard for me, for sure, being in the position I am to like maintain that friendship and everything but i think i am better off for doing that because they are people who have looked out for me in ways that even some of my liberal and leftist friends don't really even consider Mm -hmm. one of my good friends voted for trump um very problematic individual in a lot of ways (laughs) right um but i remember on instagram i posted something i mean you know that that uptick in in awareness of asian hate crimes that happened Mm -hmm. last year i posted something related and there was you know a note saying that someone was going to shoot up an asian-owned business or whatever and i was just kind of like venting about it on social media Mm -hmm. as 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 one does and this person reached out to me and said like bro like i hope you're doing okay or whatever Honestly, the thing that's brought me the most sense of security in this time is actually, like, owning a gun or whatever, right? And we kind of joke and scoff about people who are gun freaks and stuff like that. But he had a really valid point. Being able to defend myself was something I'd never even really fully looked into. Mm -hmm. And so, like, you know, he offered to take me to the shooting range, help me find, like, what guns I felt like would fit me and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And that is such a unique way he offered to be there for me that, yeah, I haven't met, there are very few pro gun liberals in my circle and leftists are obviously very, a very pro gun group, but that's not the way they choose to comfort someone when someone expresses hardship or, Mm -hmm. or nervousness or being scared. And so to have his unique, perspective offering me some level of comfort and solidarity it's like i absolutely valued that and for me it showed me that if shit really hit the fan he would choose me before he ever chose trump yeah. and i think that that's to me it was really this big reminder that people want to be connected with people more than they want to mascot or like mm-hmm. cheerlead yeah. a team yeah or whatever you know so many war movies we see where the, the main character of the movie is like this really like righteous, upstanding guy who helps people and everything. We see at least a couple of scenes of that person saving someone from the other side. Right. Yeah, yeah. Like there's this movie called Hacksaw Ridge with Andrew Garfield. I don't know if you've ever yeah. seen it. Andrew Garfield is, so it's so that's world war two. Right. And they're fighting the Japanese. Andrew Garfield's character saves a bunch of Japanese characters and to us the average viewer that's kind of what shows us like wow he really is a great guy just a Mm -hmm. a monumental person like this tower of a man type thing right and it's like he's great he's so great because he wasn't just choosing human value like he wasn't assigning the value of human life to just the people on his side he Mm -hmm. was doing it to everybody yeah and if we can recognize that when we watch a movie We can absolutely recognize that in real life. And this Mm. person, this Trump voter, this very conservative guy, he's there for me so often. And he knows my views and everything like that. But we still, like, you know, we still we still love each other. We're still there for each other. Another one of my friends, same thing. He loves Jordan Peterson. I hate Jordan Peterson, <laughs> but when Jordan Peterson says something right, I'm like, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Like, that's a great quote that mm-hmm. you posted on Instagram or whatever. He is always there for me. He chucks up on me in ways that no one else does. And for me, that's what makes it easier for me to kind of leave behind this sort of tribalistic mindset. Mm. Now I recognize I am somewhat privileged in that aspect because there are a lot of people where that level of connection and friendship is very hard to attain with people from those groups by nature of how they exist, you know. Yeah. Black folks, trans folks, you know, that's something that is very hard for them, right? Yeah. But if it gives anybody any comfort i have seen a huge amount of people who are you know conservative trump supporters who have come around to the idea of their kid being trans and now like go to the shooting range with their trans yeah. child like how cool is that well, shit? and you it's know? amazing because like
0: you know it, it is really wonderful that um that that we have this ability to or this privilege i guess to you know easily connect with others or at least not have that like very uh, threatening barrier of like extreme hate, like racism or transphobia. Um, But what's interesting is that the only way I've ever seen Those uh, barriers transcended is through connection. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I can't remember. I want to say his name's Daryl Davis, but I think I'm wrong. Um, But he was on Joe Rogan's podcast, and he was talking about how um, he converted uh, KKK members to leave the KKK. Mm -hmm. Um, And the main way that he did it was simply getting to know them. Yep. and connecting with them it was just like it was like yeah i talked to them hung out with them they, they liked the way i played piano and i worked with that right. and and so and it was just really cool to see that because he was able to you know start just establishing a fundamental like shared interest and just kind of also understanding we have more in common than we do have different right. and and then when when shit would get hot like they would start saying that like oh all black people this all black people that he would just be like well what about me <laughs> and they'd be like well well not you and he's like nah you can't do that like you have to understand that this is conflicting and then by allowing by having a strong enough to get connection to then challenge those structures it was the only way to make them crumble mm-hmm. and i think i saw a similar i can't remember her name i'm fucking these people over but uh, there's this uh this other lady on um Russell brand's podcast who did a similar thing um with people that hated uh muslims and uh, also were very um misogynist and hated women mm-hmm. and she did the exact same thing where she just simply got to know them and she yeah. simply connected with them and then when they finally felt, felt trust she was able to confront their ideologies and show look i am not that way you have to see things in a new way, and they had to because yeah. they had to incorporate her experience and their feelings. They for her. valued her more than they valued the ideology. Yes, which is exactly what you're talking about with your Trump supporter friend, where it's like at the end of the day, you know, if, if shit hits the fan, you feel more confident that he's going to be there for you than he is f- going to be there for Trump. Exactly. And I mean, in in such clear ways, you've been there, been there for him more than Trump ever has. Yeah. And I think like that's just how we can tr- transcend that division is just by remembering that we have more in common with each other exactly different and i mean as a
1: disclaimer too like i don't expect any brown person or any trans person to go out there and try to befriend the people that (laughs) hate i think that's a very dangerous (laughs) thing (laughs) it takes a lot of confidence to do that and you also have to be very willing to risk your life like this black man who did that for kkk Mm -hmm. members every time he did it he was risking his life to do it i do not recommend it (laughs) (laughs) but the that's another thing too it's like the risks You know are far outweighed by the rewards of it Mm -hmm. and so while i don't recommend it it's like that is how change happens we need to be willing to we uh, we need to be willing to put ourselves out there for the sake of making genuine change within our communities right and and that's why i feel like you know i see I've had friends who have left the church and they told their parents and their parents were devastated and alienated them. But then a few years later, their parents came around and then the whole family had this mass exodus from the church and they have now this beautiful harmonious relationship. Mm -hmm. The father's there for his children and in in a way he never was when he was a part of the church. You know, the mom doesn't guilt trip her kids anymore because of eternal salvation or whatever. Mm -hmm. And it's like you, you lost your family for a while and I don't wish that on anyone. I don't recommend that to anybody. Mm but you did find results, you did find a reward later on. And that reward, as always, is community. Yeah. What we, and I, I genuinely have just such a strong perspective that what every reward or every, you know, drop of dopamine serotonin we seek always comes back to community in some way, right? Like, even if you're playing a video game by yourself, you want to do well, not only for the personal satisfaction, But it is nice to be able to be a part of a community and say like, hey, guys, I did this and people congratulate you and everything like that. Right. Some things. Yes, we absolutely do for ourselves. I don't want to discount that. But I do think that a huge amount of us being social creatures is exactly that. We are social creatures and social validation and belonging Mm -hmm. is what we crave more than literally anything else except like food yeah (laughs) right
0: and i think it's interesting that you bring up like that selfishness is like you know still a thing and like just the need to you know sustain ourself you know Mm. like with food (laughs) um (laughs) it's a hierarchy of needs and and i i I hate like when i talk to you know people who are pro-capitalist or whatever and they say like we can't just like care about everyone else and not care about ourselves it's very unhuman people are selfish by nature and I'm like no the system feeds selfishness mm-hmm. it feeds selfishness and it thrives off thrives off of selfishness and individualism and in fact like what's re- what I see is really happening is that when we seek selfish desires it's really just to place ourselves in a unique way within a community mm-hmm. and we're just trying to augment that in a way um, but like at the end of the day we evolved within communities and we evolved successfully by relying on communities yeah. and then using our individual talents and our individual uniqueness to enhance ourselves for our communities yeah. and I think this is just such an, a, a tight evolutionary bond that's not going to be or that can't be fully destroyed and I think the, a lot of the sickness that we see in our society specifically mental illness comes from our systemic Uh, division and our systemic like deracination of community and because of that destruction we are feeling lonely and sad and and strung out
1: absolutely i think that you're so right i mean i genuinely i mean i'm not a conspiracy theorist because this stuff is factual yeah but so much of our the way that we developed 2022 american society and everything leading up to it was very intentional like Mm -hmm. Let's take car infrastructure. I'm a uh, very anti-car
0: individual. Dude, I'm becoming anti-car, and I was dude, hoping to nice, talk about this right now. Nice. <laughs> yeah, dude. That's like
1: one of the things that I post a lot on Instagram and mm-hmm. everything, and I always get a lot of people that are interacting with me about it, which is super cool. Maybe I'll rebrand to a, a, an anti-car account, <laughs> you know, just, just to be funny, right? Nice. But, I mean, I would never do that. I like my social media to maintain its personality, like <laughs> being a person and not a brand, but Car infrastructure. Take that for example. I mean, not only is it good at dividing us, it's also racist. Like, think mm. about think about segregation. Highways were literally built in certain areas in order to maintain that level of segregation. Like mm. when you're on one side of a highway, and someone else is on the other side of a highway, yeah. it's kind of hard to get to that person. Yeah, it's Same like the other side of the tracks. Exactly, tight, it's tight the other mentality. side of the tracks mentality. Mm. You can look at even a lot of neighborhoods in, like Kearns is a great example. Kearns in, in you know, really close to Salt Lake, but there's these big roads, like six-lane to eight-lane roads on one side, really nice houses on the other side, the poorest houses you've ever seen. How is that not segregation, mm-hmm. right? And it, yes, it's no by no means as intense or violent, and it's usually not as racist as it was with, like Jim Crow, yeah Jim Crow stuff, you know. But yeah, those people in those nicer houses are not interacting with the people in those poor houses. And even the way that the zoning laws work and the way that the Mormon churches areas work and stuff like that. The people in those nicer neighborhoods have their own Mormon church to go to. Yeah. The people in the poor neighborhoods, despite literally being closer to each other than those churches, that's still how work. they're separated, right? Wow. And so you think about it, what is the barrier for that? It was the road, right? It was the car-dependent infrastructure. And you think about same thing happens with highways. There were literally highways that were built. And this might, ugh, man, I don't have the exact source on it right now, but I can definitely find it later for, for anybody who might ask about it. Um, literally, some highways have been built to keep the black people on one side, and the white people on the other side <laughs> back in you know the when Jim Crow the segregation and everything and for me even just thinking about it right now like I, I use this example a lot because I love Disneyland mm-hmm. so when you if you live if you know if you're listening to this picture yourself like living in a neighborhood or whatever right you walk outside there's this huge ugly gray road in front of you right now that is taking up probably 60 percent of your neighborhood maybe 50 percent but at least half of your neighborhood is just the roads right Mm -hmm. when that could be a bunch more houses right that could be like walkable pathways and trails and everything like that. community services exactly like why do people like to go to the trail and run or to bike or whatever right not only to be closer to nature but because like it's away from those ugly roads Mm -hmm. (laughs) and for, to come to the Disneyland thing, why do people go to Disneyland? Because it's the closest thing we have to a walkable community wow, yeah, <laughs> in the <it> United <laughs> States that is not completely dependent on cars for transportation. Yeah. And yes, people go to Disney because they love the IPs, they love the brand and everything like that. If anyone knows me, they know I don't go to Disneyland because I love Disney. (laughs) I go to Disneyland because I love the feeling of walking around, being in close proximity with other people. And yeah, they're always, you know, other sweaty white Americans (laughs) and stuff like that. But I'm close to things. I'm close to a lake, diverse, like greenery, like, you know, the pond. Being able to actually get onto the pond, you know, there's like a train and everything. I can walk around. I can get food from these different places, different attractions. We love places like Disneyland because we feel like the world belongs to humans again rather than belonging to the metal death boxes that we call cars, right? Yeah. And cars, I think, have become this idea of like the the ultimate symbol of freedom. You can yeah. go anywhere. You can do anything or whatever. But it's kind of sad to sit in a car by yourself listening to your music, driving 30 minutes to some place or whatever when you could be with your friends on a train or yeah. you know, in an area that's walkable and just enjoying your time in nature with a group mm-hmm. of people and everything like that. I think that solitude is, is good. And solitude is very much something that we need as human beings. But if we're talking about connection, if we're talking about community, that gray road right in front of your house is doing nothing to contribute to growing your community. (laughs) Yeah,
0: And uh, we won't stay on anti-car for too long, but like just the thing that I've really noticed is just like the, the obvious inefficiencies in it and how dangerous it is. So like, it's not only like carving out our spiritual connection, our community, our oneness, it's also destroying the planet. It's extremely (laughs) dangerous. It's uh, like horridly inefficient. Mm -hmm. And, just fuck cars and like we, we can find a better way <laughs> yeah i
1: mean there's no time where adding lanes to a highway has ever reduced traffic no so. <laughs> i
0: saw this wonderful meme that was just showing like the worst traffic in la and it was like one, one more lane, lane. will fix this <laughs> yep yep <laughs>
1: when it's like well a train will fix that yeah so exactly
0: it's crazy well i i think we'll we'll uh, start wrapping it up here because this has been a wonderful conversation um i i really appreciate you talking with me today um and we're going to do this again. Um, Dude, of course. <laughs> especially, I especially while we still live in the same state and everything like, like we just, we just got to do this more often. Um, I love your mind and being able to pick your brain on these things, Dude, right back at you. Um, but thank you. And, uh, and make sure, uh, I don't know if you want to like, you know, share your socials, like your business or anything like that. Um, uh, you know, yeah, just make sure, sure that uh, people can reach you if they need to. But, Thanks so much for talking with me today, man. I appreciate it.
1: Yeah, I mean, um, if you wanna if you wanna find me on Instagram for whatever reason, if you wanna talk anti-car or mm. or
0: spirituality
1: or whatever, or if you wanna like hire me to do music stuff, um, it's at Todd T O D D underscore T underscore Tran T R A N. Um, But yeah, man, I've really loved this conversation. I was actually hoping that you'd say we can do it again because, you know, an hour and a half of this is by no means enough to to, (laughs) to cover (laughs) everything that we could potentially talk about. But yeah, yeah, it's been a blast, man. Thanks for having me. Perfect.
0: Appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Kindness Rebellion. I hope you really enjoyed it. Uh, This was one of my favorite conversations ever. Todd is such an amazing person to talk to. He has a wonderful mind and great ideas. Um, Make sure to like, share, and subscribe. Let us know that you like it. Join in on the conversation. It's better if we have a dialogue going on. It's the only way that we're gonna be able to learn and grow, and uh, you know, Keep uh, trying to build community. This episode was a, a lot about trying to establish community, even though it's been really deracinated and derooted from us. Um, it's time to build that back, and the only way to do that is through understanding, love, and kindness. Thank you all so much.